atheist of the last century, uh, Anthony Flew, uh, he passed something like that. And he was a debate partner with, um, who was arguably the, the top Christian apologist today, Dr. Uh, William Lane Craig at, at Talbot. And the two men actually became friends. And um, eventually, um, Anthony Flew renounced his atheistic position and came to the conclusion um, about the time he was 80 years old, 81 years old, that there, there is some kind of God out there. There's an intelligent uh, creator. Uh, tragically, he didn't go the whole way, though. He stopped there, never got to Jesus um, before he died. It's interesting, some of his, a lot of his atheist friends uh, wrote articles saying that he had gone senile, uh, that he had dementia, and that's the reason that he um, came to the conclusion that there must be some sort of intelligent designer out there. And I'm sure Dr. Craig grieved um, his departure without having uh, made the full-fledged step to, to Jesus. So never forget that that's ultimately where we're headed. It may take um, two years with our friends, it may take eight years, it may take ten years, but uh, don't stop on the journey if you have the opportunity to continue to speak into someone's life. I, I hope that the things we've been talking about these last uh, weeks, that you've been able to have some conversations with uh, some people along the way. Um, what would be awful for me is if this is simply, these are weeks where we simply uh, add things to your knowledge basket and not really give you... Um, uh, not really help equip you to make a difference in the life of uh, other people around you. We said at the beginning of this series that uh, apologetics is an attempt to offer answers, and I put it this way, to provide answers that open gates to faith. In other words, where there's some obstacle, obstacles between the individual and Jesus. We want to try to um, tear down those obstacles, or if it's a picture of fence, we put a gate in that fence so they can get there and also to secure gates behind faith. So uh, not naive um, uh, to not realize that these are some of the things that we're talking about are not just questions that are raised by skeptics, but questions that are raised by our children, questions that are raised by uh, our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and questions that we struggle with as, at times as well. Well, two weeks ago, we started uh, asking a single question that we're going to continue today. This will be the last time, but uh, basically, is there evidence for God? And, and again, if you have a, a friend that um, does not believe in God, uh, probably nine times out of ten, you're not going to be able to go to that person, open the scriptures, and say, here, see, there's a God. They're not there yet. They don't uh, see this book as authoritative. They don't see this as God. Uh, God's message to us. And so there's going to have to be some intermediary, uh, intermediate steps. And we talked two weeks ago about uh, the argument for God, for the evidence of God from design, uh, what philosophers call the teleological argument. We talked about the propulsion system in bacteria and how intricate it is. Uh, we talked about the complexity of the human eye. Uh, in fact, what uh, intelligent design people say is irreducible complexity. There's so many nuances in the human eye that it could not simply have evolved from a light sensitive dot on the skin to what we have now because it would have had, everything would have had to evolve, to evolve together. Um, is no, you take away one piece or two pieces of the human eye and it no longer works. 
Uh, so that was two weeks ago, and then last week we talked about the evidence for God in the moral code uh, that seems to exist in all mankind. Uh, even uh, atheists agree uh, on that with us, that there is there's some kind of moral code embedded in everyone. Um, why is that? And today we're going to talk about uh, this question through the lens of looking at the, at the universe. Back in 1697, a philosopher and mathematician by the name of Gottfried Leibniz asked this very fundamental question, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? And it's a very simple question. Our assumptions uh, probably most often <clears throat> keep us from even asking that question. But I've known of people who've literally laid up, uh, laid all night thinking about that question. If you don't have a God in your worldview, your view, view of the universe, that's a, that should be a question that comes up. Why is there something rather than nothing? I saw that video uh, this morning, the background of uh, Psalm 19. Uh, King David wrote this choral piece and began it this way, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak, and night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word, their voice is never heard, and yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. And so when you look up into the night sky, when you look up into the heavens during the day, when you looked at the magnificent sunset that we had last night, um, it says something. And depending on how you, the worldview you have, it might say different things. David says to those who believe in God, we, we see God shouting at us. We see him uh, communicating with us. We see him revealing himself to us. Today, at this very moment, there is a school bus sized camera orbiting the earth, 340 miles above the earth, getting beyond the light pollution from the earth, getting beyond the um, particles in the earth's atmosphere and so forth, so that it can take amazing pictures of deep space. It's the Hubble telescope. And uh, take a look and enjoy this.
I don't know about you, but I see that I'm drawn to worship, um, to come before the Lord and give him praise. Why don't we do that right now? Father, thank you for the majesty of your creation of this amazing universe. We've barely scratched the surface in our knowledge and understanding of it. And yet we have a knowledge and understanding that you made it and that you have incredible artistry, that you have incredible power. And we exalt you because you're worthy of being exalted. And we would pray that many people would see your might and your grandeur and your uh, authority as they look at the heavens through their telescopes. They look at your grandeur under the microscope and in their laboratories. And yet we realize that not everyone's drawn to worship when they see pictures like that. That some are simply drawn to greater inquiry and, and the inquiry itself becomes the God, the, what they worship. And so I pray both for ourselves and those that we talk to that we might look beyond all that we see to the one who has made all that we see and rejoice and give thanks and give you the praise that you are due. Give us understanding this morning, Lord. Give us a heart for people, um, some of whom are blinded uh, by the God of this age. They cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. Um, They can't see your fingerprints, the tracks that you've left in the universe. Um, In some cases, it's willful. In some cases, uh, it doesn't seem to be. And yet we understand from Scripture that unless you break through, unless you push against people's confusing convictions that nothing will change. So we pray that you would press into more and more the people around us, um, what they believe, and that we would be your instruments of transformation and change. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I am, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm convinced that when it comes to apologetics, that we get a lot further with uh, starting by asking questions than by giving answers. I don't know how many of you saw the, uh, what we posted on Keystone's Facebook page on Friday, a little story about uh, Leah Labresco, who was an auth- uh, atheist blogger on the Pathiest website. They have uh, a lot of uh, different portals on that website, including an atheist one. And it was interesting, a, a Christian friend of hers was talking about what we talked about last Sunday, the moral argument for God, and asked her a question about, have you ever thought about why you are a moral person? And she's like, no, I'm, you must have some idea. I, I, I've got nothing. He said, you mean you've never thought about it? And it finally, as she was being asked the questions, it started to create some doubts in her mind. And then she said something and he just looked at her and she realized how bizarre it sounds. She says, wait a minute, let me see if I believe this. Give me a minute to think about this. And that conversation, which was primarily triggered by questions, just asking her questions, led her eventually to Christianity in 2012. She tells a story on her final atheist uh, post on Pathios. And it's just intriguing to me. He wasn't making an argument with her. 
but he was trying to poke some holes in the fabric of her belief. And you know, sometimes when we poke holes, it just leaves a little indentation. Uh, but with enough poking, eventually you can tear through that fabric and people start to raise some questions or have some doubts about their own uh, confidences and beliefs. And so just to uh, think about the whole idea of questions when we do apologetics rather than starting with, starting with the answers. Uh, we'll talk this morning about the main argument for the evidence of God in the universe. And then I want to give you a bit of history about how science has thought about this uh, over the last 100 years. Um, back in the 12th century, there was a, of all things, a Muslim theologian and philosopher who grew, was growing concerned that more and more Muslims were buying into the Greek argument that the universe has always existed. It's always been here, no beginning. And that's been the conviction of uh, science and philosophers for really 2,300 years from the time of Aristotle, about 400 BC. And this uh, man, his, he was from Iran, his name was Al-Ghazali, uh, formulated what is now called the Kalam uh, argument, K-A-L-A-M. It goes like this. Everything that exists had a beginning. Everything that exists had a beginning. The second part of that syllogism is the universe exists. And the third part is, therefore, the universe had a beginning. Now, that might not sound very striking to you, very revolutionary, but it is a very revolutionary uh, argument, or used to be, with science, because science assumed the universe always was, always has been. And interestingly enough, that was the same would have been true of Christian philosophers and mathematicians down through the ages as well. Let me share with you a little bit of what has transpired in the last 100 years. 1905, Albert Einstein, one of the most famous scientists who ever lived, physicist, mathematician, discovered the general theory of relativity. For that and other contributions, he received the Nobel Prize in 1921. Albert Einstein, by the way, is not a, he was not a believer. Uh, he was born in Jewish family, uh, born in Germany, emigrated to uh, the U.S. shortly before World War II when things were getting really bad in, in Germany. And uh, he did his calculations, came up with this, uh, uni this uh, theory of relativity. I won't go into detail about that. You can look it up, YouTube it. Um, I like the video that says general relativity for kids. That helps me get it. So that's 1905. 1917, he tries to apply the formulations, the calculations of the theory of relativity to the universe. And lo and behold, the math didn't work out. What I mean is applying his calculations on this theory to a universe that has always existed didn't work out. Now, we talked before about science, and, and let me just um, go on a little bit of a tangent here because we've talked about, we've brushed up against science on a number of occasions in this series, and science is not the enemy of the believer, and the believer is not the enemy of science. And I'm thoroughly convinced that when the uh, mathematics and the studies under the microscope and the telescope are all finished, 
that there will be nothing that's found that disagrees with biblical truth about who God is and the world he made. However, science is a work in prog progress, always adjusting, always tweaking, always improving on its, on its theory and so forth. Um, in fact, I'll touch on that just a second. So what do you think Einstein, the scientist, did? Because remember, science always says we, we follow the data wherever it leads us. We always follow the data wherever it leads us, not in this case. Einstein, because it could not, because his calculations could not produce the accepted science of the day, introduced a factor into his equations that changed the outcome. Someone has written about it, a, a scientist that's written about it, called it the fudge factor. He made it work out to the prevailing belief of the day. Now move ahead about a, 10 years, 1927, 1928. There's a Belgian priest by the name of Lemaitre, Georges Lemaitre, and no, he wasn't in the movie Cars. He wrote a paper saying that the universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. Now understand science had up to that point thought the universe was static. It had always been and it was always going to remain the same. Now Lemaitre is saying, no, my calculations show that the universe is expanding and it is doing so at a very rapid rate. Now before we take the next step, let me read something for you from the University of California Ber at Berkeley website. So not a bastion of Christianity, um, in fact, polar opposite. And this is how they define theory. It is a broad, natural explanation for a wide range of phenomena. Any, excuse me, any scientific theory must be based on a careful and rational examination of the facts. Facts and theories are two different things. In the scientific method, there is a clear distinction between facts, which can be observed and are measured, and theories, which are scientists' explanations and interpretation of the facts. Remember, all, all data is interpreted. A scientific theory includes statements that have observational consequences. A scientific theory is not the end result of the scientific method. Theories can be proven or rejected, just like hypotheses. Theories can be improved or modified as more information is gathered so that the accuracy of the prediction becomes greater over time. So science is always working with hypotheses, with, with theories that say this is what the data seems to be telling us now, but as more data comes in in the future, they're going to tweak those hypotheses, they're going to tweak those theories to get a more and more accurate, did you see what they said at the last sentence? Prediction. In other words, science is always saying we think this is what is true and we think this is what we're going to find is true. Now back to our story with Mr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein and Dr. Lemaitre. The data is conclusive, it's impressive. Scientists say, wow, for the first time, for the first time, scientists are entertaining the prospect that the universe had a beginning. Now, can you see if you are a scientist with a fundamental philosophical hostility toward a creator, 
that that presents a problem to you. Two years later, 1929, a man whose uh, this space telescope that you just saw the pictures from was named after him, Edwin Hubble, calculated the rate at which the universe is expanding. Lemaitre argued that the universe is expanding. Hubble calculated through his telescope work the rate at which that universe is expanding. It's now called the Hubble constant and is accepted by all scientists. Little asterisk after that. Here's what's interesting. One day, Dr. Einstein got in his car, presumably, and he paid a little visit to Mr. Hubble. And they have a conversation about his discovery about the rapid expanse of the universe. It's constantly growing, and it's growing at a, at a rapid pace. And he talked about the fact that he had changed the equations back in 1917. And this is what he said, and I quote, it was the greatest blunder of my life. Now this is extremely, I'm convinced this is so important for us as Christians who have a theistic worldview because many of the people that we come in contact are believers that science is a, science is a 100% accurate affair. And so whatever science says now will be the same thing that it says 12 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. Not true. And Mr. Einstein illustrated that for us in an amazingly candid fashion. Fast forward 1965, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discover CMB, which means uh, cosmic microwave background in which they can measure how old, how old the universe is. And this is the genesis of not the Big Bang Theory, that would have been Hubble's contribution, but the label Big Bang Theory kind of became uh, popular through that time, over that time, based on their ability to measure how old the universe is. And Dr. William Craig that I referred to earlier, who's uh, kind of the strongest uh, Christian apologist today. In fact, Richard Dawkins has turned him down for a debate on a number of occasions, and even most, most atheist commentators are convinced that that's because they think that Dr. Craig will sweep him up. He made this comment, the eternality of the universe was so deeply ingrained that the Big Bang model encountered much resistance after its proposal in the early and the mid-20th century. However, most opposition evaporated soon after the discovery of cosmic wave, uh, microwave background in 1965. Now, let me just um, make a comment right now regarding things that we should argue about and that we shouldn't argue about. I don't know what you believe about the age of the earth. I don't know what you believe about the age of the universe. Um, for about 10 years, I believed that the earth was incredibly old. I believe the scientists' calculations of that. And then I preached through the book of Genesis, and I changed my mind. And so I now believe that the earth is relatively young. Uh, certainly that humanity is relatively young, um, not more than 10,000 years or so. Uh, I do think, though, that it's possible to read the scriptures in a literal sense, and I, I don't mean by that that we don't take metaphor um, as metaphors where it's clearly that, but I mean to take 
at face value the accounts of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as actual history. Um, I think you can read that that way and still come up with a, a belief in a very, very old uh, universe, as Dr. Craig does, a 13.8 billion year old universe that God could have created everything or the universe way back then, but then he created uh, this particular blue and green marble that we live on for man's inhabitants 10,000 years ago or, or whatever. And I don't think it's helpful to get in debates about the age of the earth, and the age of the universe with people that we're, you know, we're trying to take them to step one. Do you believe in God? Or we're trying to take them to step two. Do you believe in a, a moral code in mankind? And we want to get them to Jesus. I, I just don't think those uh, debates are productive. And I don't think they really do anything for uh, our case for Jesus Christ. So summarize all of this. And some of you are probably bored to death. Um, if you don't like history, you're bored. And if you don't like science, you're bored. And if you don't like history or science, I mean, you're just like, I wasted 10 minutes here. Um, but I think that's important because it helps us understand that science is not a perfect endeavor. Science is not an endeavor that automatically gives us right answers right away. And that we should not feel timid about pushing back against people who perceive it that way. Now let's get into the scriptures and talk about what does, the, what does the scriptures say regarding God and the universe. And we have to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, first of all. And the argument of all of the scripture, but it begins in the very first verse of the Bible, is that God made it. God made the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything that we see out there, God uh, claims that he made all of it. Um, I've been reading through the book of Job in my time with the Lord in the morning this last uh, week or so. And, uh, and by the way, if you've never um, taken the risk of reading Job, you, you really need to. Uh, there's nothing in scripture that is more important to help us understand some of the, uh, the truths and falsehoods that we believe about suffering. And uh, I, love to, I love to read it uh, each time because I'm reminded of the patience and the mercy of God. Job, you know, thinks that he has been mistreated by God and he has nine speeches in there before God turns around and kind of goes after him. Basically implying that God's um, unfair, that God has uh, treated him wrongly. God should have just left him be aborted when he was uh, in his mother's womb rather than go through all this misery in life and so forth. And then God, at the end of the book, turns around and spends four chapters asking um, Job question after question after question that basically makes this point. Who do you think you are? You are not me. You are not God. He just asks question after question. They're all rhetorical questions because Job, and Job knows the answer and so he doesn't, he doesn't respond. But I want to read a couple of verses in chapter 38 during this inquisition uh, that the Lord gives Job, beginning of verse 31. He says, can you, Job, direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of the Pleiades or loosening the cords of Orion? Those are constellations in the heavens. Can you direct the constellations through the seasons? Or guide the bear, another constellation, with her cubs across the heavens. Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate 
the earth. And it's a majestic picture in a very few sentences of God saying, all of this, I'm in charge of. And I'm in charge of it because I made it all. It exists. Something exists rather than nothing because I fashioned it with my words. Genesis chapter 1, the Lord spoke and it came into being. The Lord spoke and it came into being. The Lord spoke and it came into being. And it all came into being from scratch. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the entire universe, don't miss that word entire. By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at what? God's command. Was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Everything that you see had a divine beginning, including the universe. God made it. And he left evidence in it that he made it. God left evidence in the universe that he made the universe. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans 1 may be one of the most important chapters in all of the New Testament for us to understand God's goodness, our brokenness, and, uh, and, and how things fleshed out because of our brokenness. Verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, and so... They have no excuse for not knowing God. You say, well, wait a minute. Can the world and the heavens prove to us that Jesus came as a baby, born of a virgin, preached, taught, healed, and then went to a cross and then rose from the dead? Can, can, the, can the firmament teach us that? No. We call this general revelation. In, in general, it shows us something about God, but we're always going to need special revelation to hear the gospel. The, what Paul is trying to argue, though, is that there is enough in the universe, enough exposure, God's divine power, to, uh, these qualities, his divine nature, that no one can ever stand before the bar of God and say, oh, really? I, I didn't know. And in this text, Paul goes on to say that the reason that people don't know the truth is that they suppress the truth. This eternal, God's eternal power, it's divine nature. And so I want to make this argument that visible creation testifies to an invisible creator. Visible creation testifies to an invisible creator. This eternal power of God's testifies to what he can do, what God can can do. It's the kind of thing that astronomers and physicists see through their telescopes 
and in their calculations that the universe seems to go on and on into eternity and, and is growing all the time and galaxies are racing away from us and other galaxies at breakneck, uh, breakneck speed and we're doing the same thing from them, that this universe is rapidly expanding. And the observers mesmerized but often choose to worship not the creator but their observations, his work that they're observing. And the divine nature, I think, is speaking about what God is like. His eternal power, what he can do. Divine nature, what he's like. We see something of the glory of God. I, I, I mean, look at those pictures from the Hubble t- telescope. I'm like, I just was mesmerized when I found that video. In fact, it's double that length. Uh, there's many more pictures to see. I'm like, how can you look at that and not believe that there is a God who created all that? Gives us some picture of his glory, of God's goodness, of his beauty, his authority, his superiority. Let me just insert here that, create, that God is a creator ultimately is going to matter when we get to the gospel. Why? What does John say in, John, in the gospel of John? John chapter 1, first four verses. In the beginning was the word. And of course, in that text, that first chapter, the word always refers to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And without him, he created all things, and without him, nothing was made. Without, he made everything. He and, he and the Father made everything that exists. So if you, if you, if you remove God the creator... From the creation. You have to, of a matter of course, remove the Son as well, Jesus Christ as Creator. Now let me just, uh, in closing my final point, talk about some God substitutes that science is, in, is entertaining today. You have, to, you have to realize that the scientific community today uh, is biased, and it is biased against a designer. Uh, there's been a whole movement of intelligent design the last 30 years or so of people who are not necessarily committed to the biblical God, but cannot, they're scientists who cannot get around the fact that they see all kinds of evidence of an intelligent designer in the universe. They, they're not sure it's God. They're not sure it's Allah. They're not sure it's just some cosmic force. They just can't avoid the conclusions of their telescopes and their microscopes. And I think they're being honest. I like to see that. The problem is in the scientific community, there's a lot of pressure for you not to come to that conclusion. It has to do with you getting um, research grants. It has to do with publications in peer-reviewed scientific journals. In other words, if you come up with something that doesn't fit the pattern of the day, uh, you could get black, blacklisted and not have your works published. You could, you could not get the research grants that a lot of scientists count on. And so we should pray for the scientific community to be open to going where the evidence leads them to. Because I think that when that happens, they're going to end up uh, with an intelligent designer. So because so many... Um, scientists, uh, astrophysicists are bothered by the idea that the universe has a beginning. They have begun to postulate some alternatives to a beginning. And the most common one these days is the multiverse. Instead of a universe, one universe, there's multiple universes, a multiverse. 
as infinite number. Um, this is called MWI, many worlds interpretation. So perhaps there's an infinite number of universes where every alternative thing that you or I do or think is possible. Um, or places where life doesn't require the kinds of things that we humans need in order to have life. It's interesting, I was, um, I found, came across a guy by the name of Stuart Clark. Dr. Stuart Clark is an astrophysicist. He's written a number of books. Uh, the one that I was looking at was uh, The Unknown Universe. He's not a intelligent design guy. He's not a creationist. Um, he would be a pure secularist. I don't know if he's an atheist or not. But as he was talking about the multiverse, he made this comment. I think for me, I would prefer it if there, were, if there wasn't a multiverse. If the universe that we see around us today is all there actually is, and that spurs us on to find the meaning, listen to this, the meaning in the laws of physics, the meaning, I, lo I love that. He wants to find meaning in the laws of physics, the reason why the universe is just this way and no different. That's what he would prefer. But of course, he continues, the universe doesn't have a care what I think or want. It will just do what it does. And I read those kinds of things and I think, how despairing, how hopeless. There's this it out there. There's this thing that doesn't care about Dr. Clark, doesn't care about showing him its meaning. And I wanna say, Oh, my friend, there's another answer for you. There's another answer. If you would just look at where the evidence is leading you. Dr. Stephen Hawking is, in my opinion, is a classic example of one who has a hard bias against intelligent design. Dr. Hawking passed away a little over, a little under two years ago. But in a paper that he wrote shortly before he died, he postulated the idea that there is no multiverse and that there is no inflation, meaning rapidly expanding universe either. He has a problem with all of that. One of the modern arguments is that quantum mechanics says that something could actually come into being from nothing. And so he's, he's, he proposed in this final paper that we have a universe that's not expanding. This guy is one of the bright, was one of the brightest men in the world. And yet he was looking at the evidence and refusing to accept what most every scientist has accepted. And the journalist that wrote this article, and this journalist was a secularist. He was not invested in our beliefs or anything. But this is, what, this is the observation he made based on the reading of the paper. He said, I think Hawking's main objective is to reinforce the argument that our universe never had a singular moment of creation. In other words, he has to find a scientific alternative to the prevailing scientific wisdom that the universe did have a creation moment because he cannot leave a room, any kind of room for a God. So again, why is there something instead of nothing? We have now discovered literally thousands of planets in the universe could not sustain life. Where if you and I got in a spaceship and we landed there, we opened the hatch, as soon as our supply of oxygen from planet Earth ran out, we would die. 
And yet here is this one place in all the universe, just the right distance from the sun, plenty of water which we need in order to live. All of life's building, building blocks, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, a, a, a planet that is covered with 70% water that does an amazingly perfect job of absorbing the sun's radiation and dispersing it and dispensing the warmth that the sun uh, as it beats down on the water so that we can even survive in a place like South, uh, Antarctica, at least for a season with enough warm clothes. And that we have a, uh, that the size of the earth is just the right size to support a stable atmosphere, a moon that provides climate stability for us, and a gaseous neighbor in, in the form of Jupiter that runs interference for us. Scientists say that if Jupiter were not there, that we would be exposed to 10,000 times the number of meteor strikes and comet strikes. Why is that? Not only why is there something when there could be nothing, but why are all the elements necessary for life? How did they all end up on this planet in the middle of this vast universe where there's nothing else we could live on? Why is that the case? Robert Jastrow, who was a Christian and an astronomer, is best known for two sentences that he wrote in a book called God and the Astronomers. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries or millennia. And if I could encourage you with anything in this message, it is not to simply accept the sophistication of the scientific arguments and also to ask the question as part of poking holes in people's beliefs, where did the universe come from? Could you tell me where you think the universe came from? I know where it came from. I know where it came from. It came from the hand of God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's the reason that we trace back from Jesus to his father's hand and Jesus' hand as well. Father, thank you for the fingerprints the tracks that you have left in the universe about your creative work. And we would pray for boldness on our parts with our friends and our neighbors and our members of our extended family, our children, to not be intimidated and to think that we kind of have a, a belief that's backwoods and primitive and unscientific to appreciate science for all of its contributions and yet to recognize that it's not a perfect endeavor. It's not a, an endeavor without bias. And it's always perfecting itself. It's always improving itself as it does more and more experimentation. Give us the kind of love for our world that will prompt us not to simply smirk at our superior knowledge or convictions as we look at them, 
but to have our hearts broken for a world that needs you. In Jesus' name, amen.